preaching this morning on true hope, true hope, the real hope, the genuine hope, the real deal. Uh, hope is a, is a thing that, that we all have, but sometimes we misunderstand what we mean by hope. I hope it rains pretty soon. I don't know if it is, but I hope it will. I hope I win the lottery. That would be a good deal. I found out, though, you have to buy a ticket before you can win. I've never done that. Uh, some of you may say, I hope I make it to Cortez before I run out of gas. We have different hopes, but they're more aspirations. They're possibilities. The kind of hope I'm talking about today, and the passage is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to be turning there, and you should have received uh, an outline uh, along with the bulletin, and we've, we've got an outline there for you. You can follow along and write some things in if you want to. Hope that we're talking about is a steadfast confidence. It's an assurance. It's something that we base our lives on. This is the week we celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day on Wednesday. Almost 400 years ago, 102 pilgrims chartered an old merchant ship by the name of Mayflower, about the size of a tennis court, not nearly as big as this auditorium here. And they took everything they had and risked unspeakable dangers and suffering to leave England and go to the distant land that later became the United States of America. What would cause them to do that? It was hope a hope that they'd be able to live free, to practice the principles of their faith without fear of reprisals from the repressive Church of England. Why did they do that? Hope that they might bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 156 years later, in 1776, 56 men of their signature to the Declaration of Independence. They were challenging the greatest empire that the world had ever seen in the British Empire. They were 13 small colonies, and they faced condemnation, certain death, if they were ever captured. And everyone mocked and said, you can't possibly defeat Great Britain, but they had a hope, a hope that they might establish their own nation independent and free with liberty and justice for all. And that hope caused them to pledge their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor. Thank God for the hope that was in their hearts and their souls to take such a tremendous step. We're talking about that kind of hope. But as great as those hopes were, there's even a greater hope that whether everyone will admit it or not, there is a hope that somehow after death we won't face judgment and be condemned. A hope that we might have eternal life, our sins forgiven, a hope that we might live in heaven. That's the greatest hope there is. That's the, the true hope. And I want to talk about that today, but if you're looking on your outlines... First thing we need to do is expose the false hopes because there are so many false hopes out there being preached by other denominations and 
other religions and cults around the world saying this is your hope and we're going to dispense with those expose those hopes so hang on there this won't be too hard for you to remember the first one is there is no hope in the dope there's no hope in the dope by dope I mean anything that would dull our senses and cause us to not sense the pain and the anxiety in a physical sense chemicals and different substances can do that narcotics prescription drugs alcohol because life is tough <clears throat> at best it's difficult sometimes painful very dark we're riddled with doubts and fears and guilt and shame and many people can't deal with that can't sleep so the dope helps the dope helps you to cope but there's no hope in the dope because you sober up you come down from the drug high and you're more miserable than ever before and you've got to have more and more to try to to cope but I think we would all recognize there's no hope in that but there's another kind of dope that's more insidious and that's the dope that affects the spirit the soul the person and one of those is atheism, evolution. They say, don't worry about it. If you're from New York, they'd say it differently. I've been to New York, to New York, and buy a cup of coffee for a quarter. They would say, don't worry about it. Because you're just going to die. And then it's all over. There is no God. There is no accountability. There is nothing beyond the grave. Everything we see here in spite of what our senses tell us, we see the beauty, the order, the intricacy, the design, the majesty of all things around us, both in the macro universe and in the micro universe. And yet, we are told there's no design, there's no creator, there is no purpose, it just happened. Of course, it's impossible now, but nothing times nothing times billions of years equals everything. <laughs> that makes sense to you? Not to me. But our kids in school are being taught that. And they're saying, don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And there is no God, there is no reckoning, there's no day of judgment. That's all. But, you know, we're going to base everything on the book this morning. And in this book... Paul tells us in Romans chapter uh, 14, verses 11 and 12, I think it is, says, As it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God. So then we must all give account unto the Lord. Whether you want to or not, whether you've been taught that you don't have to, one day you're going to die, you're going to wake up, and you're going to be facing the judge. You're going to say, hey, this isn't supposed to happen. There isn't supposed to be a God. There isn't supposed to be a day of judgment. I don't care. It's going to happen. But you know, there's another kind of a dope. The dope that says, uh, don't worry about it, because if you don't make it in this life, you can do it in the next life. Reincarnation. The Buddhists, the Hindus, Shirley MacLaine and the wacko New Age folks here in America believe that you've lived many lives before. You'll live many lives in the future. And if you don't get it right in this life, well, you'll get it right in the next life. 
And so, you know, no one grabs the brass ring every time in the merry-go-round. But sooner or later, you're going to get the prize and you're going to go to Nirvana or the Happy Hunting Grounds or whatever. But you know, there's a verse in Scripture that just destroys that concept altogether. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. You only die once. You go around once. How many of you are old enough to remember those old beer commercials by Schlitz Beer? You only go around once in life, grab all the gusto you can get. Well, it's almost true. In reality, you only go around once in life, grab all the gospel you can get. That's because you only get one shot at it. So my friends, whatever kind of the drug of your choice, what kind of dope is out there? There's no hope in the dope. Forget about it. The second one is there's no hope in the Pope. No hope in the Pope. Now, before you think I'm here to bash the Catholics, I'm not. I use the word Pope because it rhymes with the other words I'm going to use. <laughs> but more importantly, I use that word because the Pope is representative of a much larger group. We're talking about somebody who's already there, somebody who's got it, somebody who's already secure, and they are there to help me, put in a good word for me, to be my advocate in that day of judgment. It could be the Pope or one of his cardinals or priests. It could be Mary, the saints, the angels. It could be someone closer. Maybe you had a grandfather who was a preacher, or you had godly parents, mom and dad, that took you to church, and they're with God now, and, and they're going to be there for you. We evangelicals have, have a, a saint on high now. Billy Graham went to be with the Lord a few months ago, and uh, some of you listened to him. Maybe you were at one of his crusades. Maybe you read a book. You saw him on television. Maybe you sent some money there. Surely Billy Graham would be there to help you out in that day of judgment, kind of standing by St. Peter at the gate and saying, hey, don't worry about this guy or this gal. I know them, and, and they're okay. You can go ahead and let them in. That's a great hope that we might have. I may not feel real secure, but there's somebody there who's going to be there in my stead, who's going to put in a good word for me, going to intervene in my case. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you there is no advocate outside of Christ. None. That's pretty exclusive, but it's absolutely true, absolutely biblical. Christ himself said so. We just talked about the, the Last Supper. We shared that together. That was the night before Christ was crucified. He washed his disciples' feet. He sat around and talked with them a while. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, got arrested, and later on condemned and crucified. What he told them was very important. And in the 14th chapter of John, uh, he said... I'm going away to my father's house. There are many mansions there. And don't worry about it because I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And uh, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we have no idea where you're going. And how could we possibly know the way? Then verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
He didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I'm a good way. He didn't even say, I'm the best way. He said, I'm the only way. And no one's going to get into heaven, into God's presence, apart from me. He was either a madman, a liar, a lunatic to say such a thing if it were not true. Peter certainly understood that. A few weeks later, he's preaching in the courtyard of the temple. And he says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name, no other way other than Jesus Christ. Paul certainly understood that. Decades later, he's writing as an old man, writing to Timothy, his disciple. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. <coughs> that certainly eliminates any other... We don't need anybody else. Christ is the perfect intercessor. He is the perfect mediator. He's the infinite God who became man, who took our sin upon himself, who suffered and bled and died and was buried and rose again. And now he's ascended at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We don't need anybody else. There's no hope in the dope, folks, and there's no hope in the pope. Thirdly, there's no hope in the soap. And I'm talking about people who think they can clean up their lives. I can be good enough. As I said, I was raised four miles north of here in a little Methodist church and was taught that, hey, if you obey the Ten Commandments, you live by the Golden Rule and the Sermon on the Mount. If your good works outweigh your bad works, of course you're going to be saved. God grades on a curve. As long as you're not as bad as the, <laughs> the really bad people, you're You're good. My friend, you cannot be good enough. You cannot clean up your life to the place where you can be acceptable to God. There's two reasons. One of them is because the standard is way too high. We talk about the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people love that, but have they ever really read it? Because in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about what God really requires of us. And in chapter 5, verse 20, he said, Unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, you say, yeah, but they were a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites, weren't they? Ultimately, yes. <laughs> but the people to whom he was speaking considered the scribes and the Pharisees the most righteous people on the planet. For example, the average Pharisee prayed three times at the temple every day. He fasted two days out of every week and did not eat. He gave 10% of everything he had to the Lord's work. He kept all the feast days, the fast days, the new moons, the Sabbath. He did them all. He performed all the sacrifices. They considered those Pharisees to be the very best. He said, you've got to be far better than they or you'll never see the kingdom of and then he goes on in the rest of that chapter saying, you don't have to sleep with someone else's spouse to be an adulterer or adulteress. All you got to do is think about it, fantasize about it, and you're guilty. You don't have to blow somebody away to be a murderer. You just have to detest them and hate them. You're already guilty. 
And he goes on to say things that are impossible for us to do. To go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. And he wraps it up in verse 48, the last verse in chapter 5, and he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. He doesn't say be good. He doesn't say be excellent. He doesn't say be moral. He says be perfect. How many folks out here are perfect? How many think you could ever be perfect? Why, it's ludicrous. Of course not. But we assume that, that God understands that and he doesn't demand it, but he does. We just shared it with you from Christ's own words. Be perfect. And not only are we not perfect, secondly, we're a bunch of sinners. We're rotten to the core when we consider ourselves in light of God. But some of us would say, well, no, I'm not that bad. I'm not a mass murderer. Uh, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a thief and a robber. I don't molest little children. I'm a good person. But we make the mistake that Paul warns about. This is not in your outline, but in First Second Corinthians 10:12, uh, it says, "We dare not cast ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, for they." measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Because we tend to look out horizontally. And I see a bunch of good people out here. I don't see any bad people here. But what we need to do is look vertically. And when we look at ourselves in light of God's standard, we are all sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that does good. No, not one. And it goes on to talk about just how rotten we really are, ultimately, in our own hearts. And verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the New Testament. It's all over in the New Testament, but it's also in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts. And I like what Isaiah said. I think this is in your outline. Isaiah 64, 6. At the end of, he wrote the longest prophecy in the Old Testament. He was perhaps the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He saw the glory of God personally, accepted God's call, gave his whole life to serving the Lord. But at the end, in 64, 6, he says, we, including himself, we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Wow. He didn't say all of our iniquity, all of our sin is like filthy rags. He said all of our righteousnesses are like filthy. The very best we can do are riddled with self and ulterior motives and and we stink in the nostrils of a righteous God. We can never get clean enough. We sang this morning about what can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So folks... 
I, you can rub-a-dub-dub, jump back in the tub and scrub, 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 but I'm telling you, Bob, you can never get clean enough. There is no hope in the soap, no hope in the dope, no hope in the pope, and no hope in the soap. And fourthly, there's no hope in the rope. I'm not talking about the hangman's rope, like Judas hanged himself. That only took him into God's presence and condemnation sooner. I'm talking about the rescue rope. You know, you're hiking on a, in the mountains and you're on a sheer kind of cliff and there's a little narrow trail along the, about midway and you slip and you stumble and you fall and you hit an outcroppy down here and you're all busted up. You can't climb out. Down below, 100 feet or so, solid rock. You're done for. You're either going to die of hypothermia or dehydration, or the buzzards are going to come and pick your eyes out. I don't know. It's, it's going to be pretty awful. But there are going to be some folks that hear you cry, and, and they come along that trail above you, and what do they lower? A rope. And you tie it around you, and they hoist you up. Thank God for the rope. Or maybe you're on a cruise ship, and you've had a little too much to drink, and you're looking over the side, over you go countless miles from shore, no flotation device. You're either going to drown or the shark's going to eat you. It's, you're done! But somebody on board hears and they grab one of those little life preservers and throws it over with a rope on the end of it. You put it around and they hoist you up. Thank God for the rope. Or maybe you're at a mountain cabin by a gentle stream. But there's been a horrible storm upstream. And that little stream's a raging torrent. And it's beating against that cabin and you're on the roof and at any moment it's going to collapse and you're going to be dashed against the rocks or a tree. You're done for. But a helicopter comes and they lower a harness and you put it on and they hoist you to safety. Thank God for the rope. And we have this opinion, this hope that at the last judgment, even though I haven't done everything right, God's going to extend the rope. I'll throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, God, I'm sorry. You're a merciful God, a gracious God. Please accept me. And, and we think no good God could ever send someone like that to hell. Don't count on it. There's no hope in that rope. Because God has already sent us the rope in Christ. In Him is absolute safety and security. Thank God for the rope. What is the most common, the most memorable verse that almost everybody knows in the Bible? John 3.16. That's the rope. God so loved the world. People all over this world, in Yemen, in Iraq, in North Korea, all over the world, God has loved the world so much so that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the rope. And there ain't no other rope. You see, God is infinite in his mercy and grace. Otherwise, he would never have sent his son to die for us. Never would he extend his salvation to the worst of sinners, the least, the last, the lost. They all have an opportunity to be saved because of his infinite grace. But there's another aspect of God, and that is his justice. His holiness is absolutely infinite in His wrath against sin and His judgment and condemnation. You don't want to go there. 
The Bible says that it's a fearful, awful thing to, to stand in the presence of the living God. He is a consuming fire. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, it says, verse 21, I think it is, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is that? John 6, uh, 40 says, What is the will of him that sent me? This is what Jesus said. What is the will of him that sent me? Everyone that sees the Son and believes on him has everlasting life. And I'll raise him up in the last day. That's his will. If you don't do that, you don't have a shot. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven, which is to accept Christ. It says, Many will say unto me, to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works, miraculous works. Then Christ says, Well, I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is not talking about somebody who was a believer and then lost it. It's talking about someone that Christ never knew. A moralist, a religious person, one who mouths the, the lordship of Christ, but not really truly born again. Depart from me. I never knew you. And if you need any other example, you might go to uh, Matthew 22. There's a parable that Christ gave about a great king whose son was getting married and he invited a lot of people to come. People laughed at it, ignored it, made excuses not to come. Some of them even beat up the messengers and killed some of them. It says that king got angry and he had his soldiers go out and wipe them all out. But the party needed to go on and the house wasn't nearly full. So he sent them out into the highways and the byways and invited everybody to come and said, the only thing you need to come, you don't need to bring a present, uh, but you need to wear the wedding garment. And I suppose for the poor people, he even provided it. And I think it was a, just a simple white robe. But as you read on, you'll find out that when the party's going on, the king walks around to meet his guests, and he finds a person there, a man, who's not wearing the robe. Now, he's not unclothed. In fact, I assume he probably had his own robe, one that was a designer robe one that was Hart, Schaffner, and Marx kind of robe, one that glistened in the sun. And he said, I don't need to wear that old robe. I'll wear my own robe. And when the king sees him, he says, my friend, he doesn't call him an enemy, friend, why don't you have the proper garment? And what did he say? The Bible says he was speechless because he knew what was required of him, but he thought he could do it on his own. And he probably thought that the master would say, Oh, it's all right. We're already here. Go ahead. You've got a nice robe on. Come on in. Or I've got an extra one back there. Put that on. We'll make, we'll make an exception here. We'll, we'll, we'll throw you a rope. But what does the scripture say? He said he called his servants. They came in. They bound him hand and foot, threw him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to mess with God's judgment. He's already extended a rope in the person of Jesus Christ. But you don't come in with your faith in him. There's going to be no reprieve. There's no hope in the dope. There's no hope in the pope. There's no hope in the soap. And there's no hope in the rope. 
Where is the hope? We have a true and living hope. Let's look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1. And in verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. You know, all those other religions based on other doctrines, other founders, those things are dead and they are dead in their belief. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. More recently, Jim Jones is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. David Koresh is dead. And they're gone. And those who trusted in them are in terrible shape because they have a dead faith. Their founder, their, their, their great leader is gone. But our, our Savior, he died. He died for our sins. But the grave couldn't hold him. On the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God. He is alive forevermore, and our faith in Him is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I don't have time to go into it, but there is no event in history more attested, more confirmed by the facts than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened, and He is alive. And my hope in Him is a living hope. Nothing like that. those false hopes, those dead hopes, those stupid hopes. There is real hope in the living Christ. He's begotten us again unto a living hope. Secondly, we have an abiding hope. An abiding hope. It lasts. And that's what verse 4 says. He's begotten us again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, and it's reserved for you in heaven. Oh, what on this earth do you have real confidence in? You got money in stocks and bonds? How secure is that? All it takes is a big crash and you're broke. Real estate goes up and down and people lose their shirts in real estate investment. Precious metals, you name it. We have... We get a brand new car and we, we delight in it, but how long is it going to be new and fresh and wonderful? Uh, if you keep it long enough, it's going to wear out, it breaks down, it's going to rattle, it's going to fall apart, it's going to leave you beside the road. Uh, you know that happens. Your brand new house, it's going to start leaking and it's going to start creaking. And it's <laughs> In spite of your efforts, uh, you can't have anything in this world that is lasting, that's secure. That is abiding. But not so the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Because He is alive, we live, we have a living hope and an abiding hope. Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 6, um, somewhere in there, 19 maybe, where He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but rather lay them up in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves cannot break through nor steal. Can't. It's secure. Uh, you know, it's, it's something where you have your money deposited by an agency of the federal government. Does that really make you feel secure? How much do you really trust the federal government? I think it was Ronald Reagan that 
said the worst, the scariest thing that ever happened is have someone come knock on your door and say, hello, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I just want them to stay out of my life. I don't, I don't have a lot of trust in any. I don't have any trust in myself or others. We wear out. We get old. We break down and, and we get sick and one day we will die. Things on this earth are just not abiding. They are coming. They're going. It's sand through our fingers. But that which is invested in Christ, that hope in Him is an abiding incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for him, in the bank of heaven, drawing interest, compounded every day, and it's waiting for those who love him and serve him. We have a great hope, a living hope, an abiding hope, and thirdly, a secure hope. Some people are saying, yeah, it may be living and it may be abiding, but I'm not sure I can hang on. I'm not sure... I can have enough faith. I'm, I'm afraid I might commit some really bad sin. I'm afraid that God's going to say, you don't qualify anymore, and I'd be excluded. Look at verse 5. We have that great hope that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. For salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Who keeps you? You have to keep yourself. Did you get yourself saved? Do you have to keep yourself saved? No, you're saved by grace. We didn't have a thing to do with that. That was God's gift. And it's God who saved us and God who keeps us. You're kept by the power of God. If I could have lost my salvation, I would have many times over. I'm just that kind of person. I'm a self-destructive kind of guy. And I think we all would have. We would have no confidence at all if, if we could lose it. But we're kept by the power of God. Think in your minds to John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I'm the great shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And he calls us sheep. That's not necessarily a compliment. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are weak. Sheep get lost. Sheep get destroyed real easily. Any of you are ranchers with cattle, you know, you can take your herd up into the mountains in the spring and leave them. And in the fall, go back and round them up and bring them home. Cattle can kind of take care of themselves. But you would never do that as a shepherd. Unless sheep are enclosed in a, in a fenced-in area, you see them out there in the open, they have to have a shepherd. Because sheep, they're just dumb. They wander off, can't find their way back. They, they can get turned over upside down and they can't get up. They'll just lay there flopping until they die. And they're easy game for wolves and coyotes and predators because they're not very fast. They're not very strong. They don't have natural defenses. They're just meal on the hoof, just waiting to be gobbled up. And the rustlers can take them easily. They're small enough to get them in your pickup and take off. That's why they need shepherds. And can you imagine a, a shepherd, a hireling, coming in at the end of the season and saying, Master, here's all the sheep that are left. Those are so dumb. Some of them wandered off and they never came back. Others of them got uh, in bad predicaments and, and couldn't save themselves, and they're gone. And uh, some coyotes got a bunch of them, and rustlers took some. And Well, this is all that's left. These are really rotten sheep. Can you imagine? What would the master say towards him? 
That was your job, dummy. That's why you were hired to take care of the sheep. Well, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And if you look at the toward the end of that chapter, verse 27, he says, <clears throat> My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Remember the commercials with Allstate? I still think, I still do it a little. You're in good hands with Allstate? We have Allstate insurance, some of our stuff. <clears throat> How confident are we that Allstate's going to be there every time? Not so much. But if it's God the Father and God the Son who have pledged themselves to keep us, and no man can ever, not even me, can ever pluck me out of their hands. I'm secure. And so are you. What a great hope. None of that nonsense of the dope and the pope and the soap and the hope. We've got a living hope, an abiding hope. We've got a secure hope, and it's all found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's other things I want to say. Well, one thing, we sang that song uh, about on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He is a solid, secure hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I want you to, to turn it in your Bibles if you got them open to John chapter 1. This is the Gospel of John begins by talking about the Word of God, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of the world unto men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overwhelm it goes on to say that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the creator, sustainer of the world, the bastion of truth and light, became a man and died for my sin and for yours. But in verse 11 it says, He came to his own, his Jewish people, but his own for the most part did not receive him. Verse 12, But to as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to be called the children of God, to become the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. Who were not born of blood or of the will of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. There are three words in there, and they're not in that order in that verse, but they're very important. These are necessary for you if you want to have this blessed hope. First one is to believe, even to those that believe on his name. Believe what I've said. They're all in the word. Believe who he is and why he came and what he did and what his, his death on the cross accomplished, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and his promise to give all of those who trust in him eternal life and to keep them forever. You've got to believe that. 
but not just believe it as a matter of fact that it's true but you have to receive it personally the Bible says the devils believe they believe more than we do they know the Bible inside and out but they tremble in fear at what they know because they have no personal faith you have to believe it's true but then you have to receive it personally to appropriate it say it's true for me I abandon hope in any of those four and any other hopes, and I place my hope in Jesus Christ alone. And the third one is become. You believe it, you receive it, you become a child of God, a man of God, a woman of God, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, eternally forgiven and saved and granted a place in heaven. Oh, wow. It's no better than that. I'm going to wrap things up by, um, as, as they normally do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a little song. But in my prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray along with me. You don't have to do it out loud, of course. But if you're at that point where you recognize that you can't do it, there's no hope in those other things, but only in Christ. And to not only believe it, but to receive it and become a child of God. And then after uh, I pray, um, Paige is going to come and lead us in a a closing chorus. Come just as you are. Hear the Spirit's call. Come and see. Come receive. Come and live forever. And during that song, if you have prayed to accept Christ or to confirm a, a faith you're not very sure of, I'd like for you to write it down on in front of you and on pews there's a little sheet of paper just right there I pray to receive Christ today or I confirm my faith in Christ today put your name on it phone number or how we can contact you and fold it over and then at the end of the service I'll be in the back these fellows here are elders who serve communion uh, you can go to any one of us and just hand it to us so that we might get back to you and we might help you and confirm uh and you know, you become a child of God, but you need some help to grow. And you say, well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure about that. I think it's a, just between me and God. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. Um, it's a public thing. It's like getting married. Can you imagine a bride being ashamed of her husband, not wanting to be identified with him, not wanting to live with him? Well, we're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. We need to be proud of, of him and identify with him. So, you got all of that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope, the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that it's a living hope, an abiding hope, a secure hope, and these other false hopes need to be done away with. And I pray, God, that each of us might have that assurance of that hope. And if not, Lord, I pray that people here right now would just say, pray in their own hearts, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And and I can't be good enough. I cannot qualify uh, for your grace or your salvation. But I realize I don't have to. Lord, you love sinful people like me. And you sent your son to die on the cross for me pay for my sin and he rose again with life and righteousness as a free gift for me 
I believe that, Lord. And right now I receive it. I confess my sin and I, I trust only in what Christ has done and I receive Him as my personal Lord and Savior. Come into my heart and life and make me a child of God. 